Welcome to Up to Date Talk, a weekly podcast in which we interview one of our up to date contributors who's a leader in the field related to a recent publication that we featured in our What's New section. We hope that this series of podcasts is a helpful way for you to stay up to date. Today's discussant is Dr. Christopher Cabral, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School, an emergency medicine physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and a researcher with particular interest in pulmonary embolism. I'm Dr. Nancy Sokol, General Internist and Senior Deputy Editor at UpToDate. The paper we'll be focusing on was authored by Freund and colleagues, published in JAMA in 2018, and is titled, Effect of the Pulmonary Embolism Rule-Out Criteria on Subsequent Thromboembolic Events Among Low-Risk Emergency Department Patients. So we're so happy that you can join us today, Dr. Cabral. Thanks for having me. So why don't we get started by first discussing pulmonary embolus in general. Can you tell us what a pulmonary embolus, or PE, is, and what signs or symptoms a patient coming to the ED should raise suspicion for a PE? Sure. A pulmonary embolus, or what we call a PE, is a blood clot in the lung, to put it simply. The blood clot typically forms in one of the large veins of the leg, and then can break off, travel through the heart, and lodge in one of the pulmonary arteries. It's actually a relatively common diagnosis, and the third most common cause of cardiovascular death in this country. Mm -hmm. So what would make you think that this patient might have a PE? Well, that's where things get difficult. Uh, The diagnosis of PE is very challenging because the symptoms that it presents with, which are most commonly shortness of breath, chest pain, leg pain and swelling, or signs like tachycardia, or a rapid respiratory rate, or even syncope, those can be very subtle, and they can also overlap with a lot of other diagnoses. Right, a very nonspecific presentation. Exactly. So when you have a patient who comes in and you think PE might be part of the differential diagnosis, how do you approach that patient sort of broadly? So the the first step that we have to take is to assess the patient's probability that the symptoms that they're presenting with are caused by a PE. And the reason that that's important is that it helps us decide which tests, or in fact, whether any tests are indicated in the workup of that patient. We use the prior probability of a PE, in other words, whether we think the patient has one or is unlikely to have a PE, to determine the next steps in the diagnostic workup. Okay, and we're going to be talking about these PERC criteria or pulmonary embolus rule-out criteria. So they're intended to be used for patients who have a low pretest probability. How low? So the general threshold is less than 15%. And when we studied the PERC rule and when it was derived, we based that on the clinician's gestalt. So really as simple as asking an experienced clinician what do you think the patient's probability of PE is? And if that answer was less than 15%, then the patient was eligible to have the PERC rule applied. Now, that should be taken in light of the fact that clinicians are known to overestimate pretest probability. So even when we ask clinicians whether their pretest probability is less than 15%, it turns out that less than 5% of those patients will typically turn out to have a PE. Mm-hmm. So other than Gestalt, is there another way to determine pretest probability? There are a number of different ways. 
a couple of clinical scores have been widely adopted and integrated into guidelines. So folks may have heard of them. The most common is probably the Wells score. It was developed in Canada. Uh, there are also scores like the Geneva score or a simplified version called the revised Geneva score that include a combination of objective or in the case of the Wells score, a subjective question about the probability of PE. And so clinicians can use these scores to also place patients into categories of risk in terms of low, intermediate, or high probability that their symptoms are caused by a PE. And does the Gestalt probability correlate pretty well with these criteria? It does. And in fact, studies have shown that the Gestalt may actually outperform some of these criteria. The benefit of the criteria is that they're relatively standardizable and consistent. Exactly, reproducible. But clinicians' Gestalt works just as well. Mm-hmm. So we talked about low pretest probability being the group for which we would apply the PERC. What about intermediate probability? What do you do with the patient in that category? So once you've determined that the patient needs a workup for a PE and you've assigned them an intermediate probability or even a high probability, then some form of objective testing is indicated. In intermediate probability patients, often the first test is going to be a D-dimer test. But in higher probability patients, you may go straight to a CT scan of the chest. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is the intent of the PERC criteria? I think you were involved in their development. Is that right? I was, yeah. We, We helped to develop and then validate the criteria in a couple of studies done in the early 2000s. And what was it that you were trying to do with them? Well, starting in the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, several things happened in the diagnostic testing for PE. Um, One was the development of D-dimer tests, which are a non-invasive blood test that can be used to rule out PE and can easily be performed in any emergency department. The other thing that happened was that CT scanning began to replace ventilation perfusion scanning as the go-to test for working up possible PE. Since both of those tests are readily available, they began to be used more and more. And combined with the fact that clinicians were starting to recognize how common and dangerous PE is, we saw an enormous increase in the use of diagnostic testing for PE. And possible overdiagnosis of PE? Possible overdiagnosis and certainly overtesting. So now we see that nearly one in every 100 patients who comes to an emergency department is tested for PE. And that has the potential for adverse consequences. Okay. So let's turn to the criteria themselves. What are its eight components? So the first one is that it's meant to be applied for patients who are less than 50 years old. Then we look at vital signs. So the patient should not be tachycardic, meaning their heart rate should be less than 100. They should not be hypoxemic, meaning their oxygen saturation should be greater or equal to 95%. They should have no hemoptysis. If they're a woman, they should not be on estrogen use and particular birth control pills. They should not have a history of prior DVT or PE. They should not have unilateral leg swelling. And they should not have had recent surgery or trauma requiring hospitalization within the past month. And if any of the PERC criteria are present, then you would go ahead and do further testing. Is that correct? Right. This isn't a score where you assign point values per se. If you say yes to any of those questions, then your PERC criteria are considered positive. Okay. 
So now let's turn to the study itself. It's described as a non-inferiority cluster randomized crossover trial involving 14 emergency departments in France. So that's a lot of uh, terminology. Let's um, have you explain a little bit about what each of those uh, trial components means. Um, what's a non-inferiority trial? So again, yeah, you're right. It's a lot of, uh, lot of terminology, but none of them I think are terribly complicated. And a non-inferiority trial is a little different than many of the clinical trials uh, we might read where we're trying to prove that one approach is superior to another approach. In a non-inferiority trial, you're trying to show that one approach is simply not inferior to another approach. In this case, because the PERC rule identifies patients whose risk of PE is so low, less than 1% typically, it would be very difficult to show that it was superior to another approach. So showing that the PERC rule is not inferior to the standard approach um, is an appropriate design for this particular type of study. Right. And the PERC rule then also has benefits over the standard approach in avoiding unnecessary testing. Exactly. It has benefits in avoiding CT scans in particular, which expose patients to radiation and contrast dye. And it may also have benefits in terms of fewer false positive diagnoses and the ability to move patients through the emergency department a little quicker. And a cluster trial. What do we mean by that? So most clinical trials randomize subjects at the level of the individual patient. One patient gets a particular approach, another patient gets a different approach. But when you're talking about something where clinicians are asked to change their overall practice, like implementing the PERC rule, it's very difficult to do that at a patient level. A cluster randomized trial assigns the unit of randomization at, in this case, the hospital level. So some hospitals were started in the trial using the PERC rule, and then other hospitals, randomly assigned, started the trial using their standard practice. So the hospital was really what was randomized. And the crossover component, where does that come into play? So where some of the hospitals started using the PERC rule, and they did that in this trial for six months, after a brief period of what we call washout for two months, a hospital that started using the PERC rule then crossed over and applied the practice using their standard existing uh, clinical practice. So in this trial, each hospital got to do both the PERC approach and the standard approach. Mm -hmm. That allows each hospital to really serve as its own control. So let's talk about what outcomes uh, they looked at. What, what did they measure and what did they find? The primary outcome was the incidence of PE found after the patient left the emergency department. So it was a diagnosis based on follow-up. And what they were trying to find is if you applied the PERC approach, did you miss more PEs that were subsequently diagnosed based on clinical symptoms and testing after the patient left the ED? How long after the patient left the ED were they doing the follow-up? They followed patients for three months. And how did they diagnose the PE if there was one in those patients? Did everybody have a, a test? No, no. Um, the 
patients needed to present back to care with symptoms or signs of a clinically significant PE and then undergo testing. So the protocol didn't require patients to have any sort of follow-up testing. It was only going to capture these PEs if they were clinically important enough that a patient presented with symptoms. So what did they find for the PERC and non-PERC groups? Well, they found that the PERC approach was non-inferior to the standard approach. In fact, there was only one patient who had a PE on follow-up in the PERC group, and there were no patients in the control group, but that was essentially equal. And in fact, when they looked at that one patient that was missed, uh, it actually seems like that may have even been a false positive diagnosis. So there was really no significant difference in using the PERC approach versus the standard approach in the number of PEs that were missed in that follow-up period. And and what about for the number of CT scans that were done for these patients? Okay, so that's where things get interesting. They actually found nearly a 10% reduction in the number of CT scans that were required. So PERC patients had a 13% versus a control patient having a 23% use of CT scan. And any other findings? Yeah, they actually found that patients that had the PERC approach applied were more likely to go home from the emergency department sooner. So there was a reduced emergency department length of stay. Um, And yet there was no difference in the mortality rate and really no significant difference in the rate of three-month readmissions to the hospital. So they were able to reduce CT scanning without missing PEs and with no adverse effect in terms of rehospitalization or mortality. So presumably a significant cost benefit. Yeah, they didn't actually analyze that, but that, that is uh, a safe assumption. Okay. Well, since the endpoint, uh, which was a symptomatic pulmonary thromboembolism, did not involve formal assessment for PE, I suppose it's possible that some asymptomatic small PEs were missed. Is there any clinical risk to not treating such PEs? It's certainly possible that some small PEs were missed in patients that may have had minimal symptoms and not represented to care. However, there's currently clinical controversy about whether small or asymptomatic PEs really need to be treated at all. In fact, some recent guidelines have suggested that isolated subsegmental or the smallest PEs uh, may be safely monitored without anticoagulation. So in this study, I do think it's appropriate to use an outcome that is clinically significant PE or PE that actually requires a return to care because of symptoms and, um, and diagnostic testing. So what did we learn from this study that we didn't know before it was done? Well, the PERC rule has been applied in the United States for some time, and it's been well validated and incorporated into guidelines. However, we also have seen that Patients who are evaluated for PE in Europe appear to be quite different uh, than those who are evaluated in the United States. Do we know why? That's, it's an interesting question, and we can speculate as to why. The European emergency care system is quite different than we have in the U.S., uh, often based on referrals to emergency departments, whereas here we see a lot more spontaneous presentations, patients choosing to come on their own. Also, people talk about the medical legal environment in the two uh, settings as being different and potentially prompting more defensive medicine practice in the U.S. We're we're more risk-averse. We are more risk-averse. But the result of that is that the 
the proportion of patients worked off for PE in Europe who have PE is has been higher than it has been in the US. So there you see about 20% of patients who are worked up for PE actually have the diagnosis, whereas in the US, it's only five. So have the PERC rules been studied in a European population before? Yes, and that's one of the big reasons that this study is so important. So there have been a couple of retrospective analyses of the PERC rule in Europe, and what they found was that it did not perform quite as well as it did in the United States. But those studies had some flaws in that they were retrospective and also rather than using clinical gestalt to determine the pretest probability, they used the revised Geneva score, for example. And the revised Geneva score includes a number of similar criteria to the PERC rule. And so applying those two scores together really was redundant and possibly explained why the proportion of patients with PE that were missed by the PERC rule was higher in Europe. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting now that when we apply the PERC rule in a large European randomized trial, using the same criteria that it was meant to be used in the United States, we actually see the same exact results. So this shows that the PERC rule works and can be applied not only in the US, but also in Europe if it's applied in the way it was originally designed to be. So what reservations would you as a clinician have in applying the PER criteria either here or in Europe? Any? Um, I think, no, I don't have any reservations in applying the PERC rule. The only caveats I say is that clinicians who are going to apply the PERC rule need to understand what it's meant to do. So first of all, like this study shows, it's really only meant to be used in patients where the clinician thinks the probability of PE is low. So a patient may come in and the clinician is thinking, you know, it could be a PE, I might want to work that up, but I think the probability is low and they can apply the PERC rule in that patient. The reason that's important is that like any clinical decision rule, it can't account for every single circumstance that a patient might present with. So rare things like clotting disorders or strong family history, uh, even pregnancy, aren't incorporated into this rule. And the clinician's gestalt can capture those things and allow that clinician to decide if the PERC rule is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, second, the second thing that I think is important to remember is the PERC rule doesn't tell clinicians that a PE workup is necessary. So simply because you have a positive PERC rule does not mean you need a workup for PE. If that was the case, then every uh, woman who was on hormone therapy would need a workup. When or they every woman PED. over 50. Or every man over 50. That's right. true, right. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you that you should work up a PE if the PERC rule is positive. And clinicians need to remember that it should only really be applied to help you determine that a PE workup isn't indicated. And that's, a, that's actually one last important point that clinicians need to remember. The purpose of the PERC rule is not to just avoid testing. The PERC rule actually identifies patients whose risk of PE is lower than the risk of testing. Mm -hmm. So by applying the PERC rule, you can avoid exposing patients to the potential harms of CT scanning and radiation and false positive diagnoses and potentially keep them safer than if you had done a test for PE. So your feeling is that uh, the PERC rules uh, should be widely implemented, is that correct? 
Yeah, I would I would suggest that. And I think that uh, the guidelines that come out of the United States now support that. And hopefully with this study, that will extend throughout Europe and perhaps the rest of the world as well. Okay. Well, thanks so much for sharing this information with us. And uh, it was uh, very enlightening for me. I'm not an emergency room physician, but now I understand um, a lot more about them. And uh, have a great day. All right. Thanks again for having me. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you would like to get more information on any of these studies or other recent updates, please visit uptodate.com and look at our What's New and Practice Changing Updates sections. We appreciate your feedback, and please leave us a review on the podcast service you use to access these podcasts.